Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we um, thank you for your word. We are certainly needful of it. We have been on the receiving end of a lot of words this week. Uh, If we're honest, we have been catechized, um, not by your word, but by um, the culture, uh, by our own flesh, by the world. Uh, We've probably had the devil whisper in our ear more than once this week. So, Lord, we're so needful. We're needful for the pure word, words of life, uh, the word which brought into being the creation and the word which affects the new creation in Christ. And so, uh, Lord, make us hearers of it. Holy Spirit, apply it to our heart. Um, Again, we are hungry and thirsty, so feed us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the most famous uh, poems that T.S. Eliot uh, ever composed was called The Hollow Men. And the last line of it goes like this. This is the way the world ends. Not with a bang, but with a whimper. Now, we're not at the end of the world, but we are at the end of the Ten Commandments. And you wouldn't be blamed if you thought that what started off with a bang, you know, is ending with something of a whimper. Uh, We started a couple of months ago with the thunder and lightning of this exalted command to worship God alone, and, you know, we're ending with a command that, you know, includes, among other things, not to cast too longing an eye on, you know, that donkey tied up to that post over there. And in just a few weeks, we've gone from, don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, to what seems like a command that's saying, you know, and, and, and while you're at it, Would it kill you to learn to just be happy with what you got, right? But before we jump to any conclusions, you know, about this command, I want to look at how we got here. And to kind of grossly oversimplify things, these commands have taken us up and they've taken us out. The first table of the law, the first four commands have kind of an upward orientation. They they zero in on our relationship to God, our duty to Him and worshiping Him alone and turning from idols and honoring His name and centering our life on, on, on worship of Him with His people. And, you know, by the same token, the, the, the five commands preceding this one have kind of an outward orientation, uh, you know, um, zeroing in on our relationship with our neighbors. So the thrust of the first table of the law is upward. The thrust of the second table of the law is outward. And, and at the same time, there's, there is an interpenetrating, reinforcing dynamic in place so that I think every command has both, both the upward orientation, both the outward orientation, you know, so that love of God always works itself toward love of neighbor, Love of neighbor is always in some way an expression of love and honor for God. But then you get to this 10th command, this command against coveting. And we're faced with an undeniable truth that is at work in all the law, but most explicit here, that the law directs us not only up and not only out, but also in. This command has an explicit laser focus on the inner life, on the heart. And we end here, I think, that we would know, in case it's eluded us up to this point, that the law is directed toward and connected fundamentally to the heart. And it's worth pointing out how unique that is. The law codes of the ancient world weren't really concerned with your heart. 
you know, they were concerned about outward compliance. You know, so that, so that you wouldn't kill the person, so that you wouldn't make the sacrifice, so that you wouldn't steal the stuff, right? And how, you know, however you felt about those things, whatever motive you may, may have had, that's kind of immaterial. It was the Nike principle of the law, just do it. Or don't do it. But God's law has built into it, at its very center, a concern and a care that reaches beyond outward compliance and gets into the inner life. And that means his rules are inextricably connected to uh, relationship, relationship with him, fundamentally. And real life-giving relationship necessitates, right, not just habits, but heart. To, to just go through the mechanics, right, of being a husband or a wife, or the mechanics of being a father or a mother or a child or a neighbor, you know, what does that tell you? It, it, it tells you there's no relationship there. It tells you it's been killed because healthy relationships are always connected to the heart that motivates us, that moves us toward one another. You know, the, the heart that has a an inner affection, an inner care, an inner desire, an inner pursuit and concern for the other good, for the other's good, that, that forms the bonds, that nourishes the relational life. Isn't that true? A, a mechanical, outwardly compliant, inwardly disconnected way of living this out, living relationships out, would be really troubling, wouldn't it? I mean, imagine, you know, if you woke up and said, you know, good morning, spouse. I will now apply the first of your three daily kiss allocations. I will now perform the requisite dishwashing according to the terms of our marital agreement. Right? It's creepy. You know, and it indicates something's gone terribly wrong. Well, God is a God of relationship. His concern goes beyond outward compliance to the condition of the heart. And, you know, another way this command kind of stands out, you can see it right there on the page by, by just word count, right? I mean, look at the text. You got it in your bulletin. Preceding this command is this rapid-fire barrage of you shall nots, right? You shall not murder, commit adultery, steal, bear false witness. And then we come to you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not... Uh, covet his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or, or anything that's your neighbor's. And it kind of makes you wonder, you know, just on the face of it, why so wordy? Why so repetitious? Why, why so specific? Or, you know, conversely, you might even ask, why aren't the other commands more like this one? You know, why aren't they wordier and more repetitious and more specific? Why not, you shall not murder? You shall not murder on a train. You shall not murder in a box. You shall not murder with a fox. You shall not murder in a house. You shall not murder with a mouse. You shall not murder here or there. You shall not murder anywhere. Why the rapid run of blunt commands concluding with what looks to be a bloated command? Well, the consequences of murdering and of stealing, and of lying, and committing adultery, you know, are basically out there. I don't know if you've seen these videos where they put, you know, a little kid, they're kind of cruel in a way, they put a little kid in front of like an ice cream sundae, you know, and they're filming him, and, and, you know, and the mother says, look, don't take a bite of it until I come back. You know, and the mother leaves, 
you know, and she comes back to a kid, you know, with whipped cream and chocolate sauce and jimmies all over his face, you know, all the while denying he never took a bite. Right? And what, what one lacks in a situation like that is what we call plausible deniability. Right? It's tough to deny that you've eaten the Sunday when half of it is on your face. And it's, it's tough to deny you've murdered when you've got a bloody dagger in your hand. Or you've committed adultery when the paternity test turns blue. But you could go around this room right now and ask anyone, have you got a problem with coveting? And all it takes is, nope, that's all it takes. And that's, I think, why this command against covetousness is so comprehensive. There's repetition in it. Neighbor is repeated three times. This is all about your neighbor. You shall not covet is repeated twice. And then there's, there's actually seven things we're told not to covet. Seven things. Seven is a nice round Hebrew number that represents totality, which makes this a command not merely a prohibiting the coveting of anything that belongs to your neighbor, but, but I would say it, commit, it, it prohibits the coveting of the totality of your neighbor, their life. But still, you know, I don't know about you, but I look at an ox or a donkey, and I thank God for the invention of the internal combustion engine. No temptation there for me, Right? But the sheer specificity of the command, the wordiness of the command, I think invites us to walk through it kind of slowly. You know, don't covet your neighbor's house. Man, I'm getting tired of this place. You know, they've got a view of the Sangres, and I've got a view of 12 cars in my neighbor's unmowed front lawn. Don't covet your neighbor's spouse, right? When I talk to him, he just seems so understanding and interested in a way that my husband is not. Don't covet your neighbor's servant or ox or donkey. The car's leaking oil, and they just got a new SUV. You know, they just got back from two weeks in Maui, and I've been spending two years saving for a night at Buffalo Thunder. I'm stuck in this stupid job, and he just got promoted. Their kids are happy and successful, and our 24-year-old is really struggling and can't seem to launch. Their parents are, are so cool and mine are so lame. Or anything that is your neighbor's. I wish I could be as thin as she is. I wish my family was more like theirs. I wish my life was as easy as theirs. I wish I was as strong and happy and carefree and put together as that person is, right? It helps to walk through it. Now, I can remember learning somewhere along the way that the Ten Commandments, or at least the second table of the law, kind of follows this trajectory from something like mortal sin to manageable sin, right? Um, the second table kicks off with this monstrous sin of murder and ends with this sort of manageable sin of covetousness. But I wonder if we can begin to see how powerful this actually is, how despite the narrative that, you know, there's no purer terrain than the regions of my heart. You know, what does every movie tell you to do when you're stuck? Follow your heart. That in fact, when you get into the heart, you're in pretty wild territory. <laughs> Jesus once got pulled into an argument with some religious leaders that had to do with, you know, what, what corrupts a person? 
uh, and the religious leaders made the case that the way that works is, is sort of like this, that the bad stuff out there uh, gets in here. And, and the result is that an otherwise good person becomes a corrupt person, a bad person. And Jesus kind of hears that, and, he, and, he, and he, his answer to that is actually you've got it completely backwards. It's not the bad stuff out there getting into, you know, my otherwise pure heart that corrupts me. It's that the, the corruption is already there, that it flows out of me. For, and here's how he puts it, for out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality and theft and false witness and slander. Out of the heart. So, so we're mistaken to think of the stuff stirring in our hearts as in any way manageable. It is instead quite monstrous. So the Bible would speak in such strong terms about covetous, covetousness in places like Romans 1, where covetous, covetousness is listed alongside with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, and malice, and envy along with murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, among other things. In Ephesians 5, Paul instructs the church that sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. What? It's wild, isn't it? Covetous. Covetousness nestled between evil and malice, envy, cheek to jowl with murder, a sin so serious that the church is urged not even to name it. So what are we to do with all that information? Now, you've got a choice here. You can chalk it up to the Bible doing what you imagine the Bible always does, that it's getting a little hysterical and a little puritanical about these things. You know, but on the other hand, you might consider the possibility that what has become normal and seemingly manageable could also be damaging and even deadly, not only to your own heart, but to your relationship with others. You know, there's a famous scene in Monty Python and the Holy Grail where there's this group of questing knights and they come upon the cave of Cairbernog. It sounds a lot better with a Scottish accent. And, you know, they're kind of hiding behind rocks, and it's a smoking cave, and there's bones scattered, you know, at the mouth of it, human bones, and they're all keeping their distance, and they're super cautious about going into it. But, you know, they kind of decide, you know, one of them goes, well, the coast looks clear, I'm going to go in. And then one of them, you know, who's familiar with the dangers of the cage, yells out, too late, there he is. And then you see at the mouth of the cave, a little white bunny, you know, hopping around, and the... And the knight, you know, curious about the danger this guy's just identified, he says, what, is it, is it behind the rabbit? And the other knight says, it is the rabbit. And, you know, the, the one about to go in kind of laughs it off, and he says, you silly sod, you've got us worked up. And another one says, what's he going to do, nibble my bum? And he warns him again, he says, oh no, that is no ordinary rabbit. That is the most foul, cruel, bad-tempered rodent you've ever set eyes on. He's got a vicious streak a mile wide. He's a killer. And then another night, tired of this conversation, just decides he's going to go in and he says, rabbit stew coming up. And immediately is decapitated by this sweet-looking little bunny. And I... I use that as an illustration because I think when it comes to sin, I suggest, you know, in our culture, we're more susceptible to seeing it as a cute little bunny rabbit 
than a killer. And especially when it comes to managing our inner life, right? We kind of have this idea that so long as it doesn't disrupt my ability to be productive and function, so long as it doesn't hurt anyone, it's okay. But I would suggest to you that that is in and of itself part and parcel of the deceitfulness of sin. Part of what would draw you in in order to kill you, the idea that it's manageable. Which makes it all the more deadly. So then we have to get to the basic question we haven't answered yet. What exactly is coveting? Well, let's just start with what it isn't. It isn't desiring. It isn't longing. It isn't wanting. It isn't having drive. It isn't even having ambition. Jesus was hungry, thirsty, lonely. He desired in his hunger and thirst and loneliness food and drink and company. He prayed to God, asking if there might be even some other way for redemption as he was headed on the way to the cross. He had desire, but he didn't have covetousness. You know, and, and spend a little time reading the, the, the Bible, and everywhere, I would say desire, good desire, is commended, urged. You know, and there, the Bible is a book of women desiring children. There's, it's a book of longing for justice and peace and uh, the goodness of godly ambitions. It's a, it's a book that commends good godly sexual desire, the desire to improve our lot in life with hard work. Christians are urged to desire the spiritual gifts, long for the Holy Spirit, to pray for, what did we do earlier? To pray for his kingdom to come. We're desiring that. Those are good desires. I would even say it's not overstating it to say that Christianity is a religion of desire. A desire with the aim of being filled with good things. And in that way, it's an absolute contrast to Buddhism, uh, which says that the aim of life is to be emptied of desire. Right? C.S. Lewis famously said, our problem isn't that we desire too much, but in fact that we desire too little. Uh, that we are like, as he said, an ignorant child who goes on, who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. And we're far too easily pleased because we fixate our desires on the things of this life, good gifts that they are, as ultimate gifts. When in fact, they are hardly the half of it. When we're invited to enjoy the gifts and the giver, Jesus Christ. So then the question is, what differentiates good godly desire from covetousness? Well, I think there's, the first problem is what Augustine identified as inordinate desire, desiring the wrong things or desiring good things for the wrong reasons, Dis, kind of a disordered desire. And, and the second is what we might call disordered contentment, discontentment. In short, a disorder in how I think about what I need and also a disorder in how I think about what I already have. You see that kind of one-two punch? Disordered desire, disordered contentment. So covetousness isn't just wanting something good for myself. Nothing wrong with wanting to be married or a decent house or a better job or obedient children. Covetousness disorders desire so that what I want is that person's life, that person's house, their job, those kids, their wife, 
that life. James describes the disorder like this. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So for my desires to be filled in that frame of mind, it means that in order for me to be enriched, you must be impoverished. In order for my life to be improved, yours must be degraded. In order for me to be delighted, it is, in order, it is necessary for me to put you into a state of despair. <laughs> and seen that way, you can begin to see how, covetous, how the sin of covetousness amounts to something like an internal violation of the whole second table of the law. So that in my heart, I throw the honor of authority aside. Who cares about their marriage vows? Who cares about their ownership? Who cares about their rights? And in my heart, as James says, I kill, I steal, I lie, I violate whatever I have to in order that, I'm, that, that I might secure what I've become convinced is necessary to my life and happiness. It's a disordered desire. Covetousness also undoes the entirety of duty to love my neighbor as myself because my desire involves stripping my neighbor of the good in their life in order that I might have it, regardless of what damage it might do. And look, I'm not a Luddite, but I will say that this is pretty much the fuel that runs social media, <laughs> which is largely an enterprise dedicated to affecting covetousness. You know, urging me to obsess over that wonderful, you know, and I'll add highly curated life of others. Or, and this is where I think we have to be careful, by me fanning the flames of covetousness in others, by presenting my life as utterly enviable, right? Yeah, that's the disorder. You've got the thing that should be mine, and I'm angry about it, and we need to trade places in order for me to have life. This, the second disorder, and I think it's connected to the first, is discontentment. Um, Westminster Shorter Catechism, when it asks the question about what's forbidden in this commandment, it gives this answer. What's forbidden is all discontentment with our own estate, envying or grieving at the good of our neighbor and all inordinate motions and affections to anything that is his. Um, we just saw how disordered desire violates the, entire, the entirety of the second table of the law and the call to love our neighbors, and now we're beginning to see with this idea of discontentment that we're violating the entire first table of the law. To love the Lord with all our heart and soul. Discontentment is the conviction that I need more than the Lord and his provision for my life. That, that that's not enough. That he's not enough. So, you know, while disordered desire gets me believing that my neighbor owes me, discontentment, I think, convinces me that God owes me. And, and you take it all in, and it turns out that the, the, ten command, the tenth command isn't just kind of the, the last entry of the commands. It is, in a very real sense, the entirety of them all. Like, like if I had a machine up here, some kind of inversion device into which I could, you know, just dump the law of God, and, you know, to the end that it would spit out the very opposite of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, the neighbor is yourself, the thing it would spit out would be covetousness. This is why Paul calls covetousness in Colossians 3 idolatry. 
you know, looking for love in all the wrong places, looking for life in all the wrong places, out of this kind of heart conviction that unless I secure this thing or that place or this person or that position for myself, I've been robbed. And that is really the essence of all sin, desiring something more than God, the making of something of something or anything more important than God. So it turns out the command doesn't end with a whimper, it ends with the whole world. With kind of an all-encompassing, you can run but you can't hide, summary and culmination of all of it. So then the question is, how might a command like this drive me to glorify God in my life? How might it move me toward love for neighbor? How might it grow me in godliness? Well, in this way, I think, by letting the law in, all the way in, in order that the gospel would get all the way in. In Romans 7, you know, Paul doesn't just kind of express the truth of this. He gives a little testimony of what happened in his life, of how this worked in his life, of, of what happened when he really let the law in, that the gospel would get in, to the end that he would know the sinfulness of sin and the need for his Savior. And I got to tell you, every time I read this, and I'm well familiar with the book of Romans, I've read it many times, every time I read chapter 7 and this little testimony, I'm just kind of shocked. I can't believe it. Because what he says in there is that he would not have even known what sin was were it not for letting God's law in. And specifically, this law, the 10th commandment. I just want to think about that for a second because he doesn't say that, you know, I really came to understand the seriousness of sin. And he doesn't say, you know, I really came to see the damage it can do or, or you know, my own personal struggles with it. What he says is I wouldn't have even known what it is. And you got to wonder how that's even possible. It's not that he wasn't religious. He was very religious. He went pro in religion. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. That's what he says about himself in Philippians 3. And it's not that he hadn't thought about sin in some way. He talks in that same passage about having a zeal that drove him to persecute the church. What's that? And he, in other words, he had a sense that there was some stuff wrong out there that he was convinced was dishonoring to God and hurting his people, and he wanted to move on it and stamp it out. He had some kind of conception of sin. He also had a conception of the law. He goes on to say that as to righteousness under the law, he was blameless until... You know, if you were to follow Paul around, you'd observe a world-class rule keeper. All the ceremonies, all the washings, all the sacrificing, all the tithing, all the worshiping, on and on and on. You would observe in Paul a life which by all appearances had an upright upward orientation and an upright outward orientation. He was enacting all the external requirements of the law, but what he lacked was an encounter with it. And then the law got in. Now, Mark Twain said that a man who carries a cat by the tail learns something that he can learn in no other way. And in similar fashion, Paul learned by letting the law in something he couldn't learn in any other way. And it was 
by the law that he learned for the first time ever, he says, what sin actually is. It was an encounter that absolutely wrecked him, but in a good way. He describes it in this way. He says, sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment. Again, he's talking about the 10th command. Deceived me and through it killed me. What's he talking about? What is this deception that seized an opportunity through the law and then killed him? The deception, I think, is this. The sin is manageable. That with sufficient instruction and adequate motivation, sin can be managed. Sin can, in time, be mastered. That with sufficient instruction and adequate motivation, righteousness can be attained. And Paul says it wasn't until he had to contend with this command, the one against covetousness, that he finally saw the matrix of the human heart, like in that movie, where all of a sudden you see everything behind it. The operating system of the heart. And he saw that that operating system runs effectively on self-righteousness. On the lie that gives life to all sin, that God is not enough for me, that I must steal life, I must secure it for myself, I must get love and self-acceptance from other sources where I can, regardless of how it may affect others. And I think, and Paul would attest to that that in his life took a very religious shape. He's a great rule keeper. Of course, it can take a rebellious shape as well. But Paul said, it wasn't until I let the law in, until I really let it land on me and do the work of revealing the truth of my sin and the holiness of God, until then, I didn't even know what sin was. I thought it was a little white bunny. He saw that what he had been calling personal holiness was, in fact, a grand, life-consuming strategy to avoid the reality of sin the actual reality of it, and as a consequence, avoid the Savior. There's a character in Flannery O'Connor's story called Wise Blood of whom it was said there was already a deep, wordless, black conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. And how do we avoid sin? We avoid it by the idea that we can keep the law, that it's manageable, that it's a little white bunny. So the question to you, to me this morning, is have you let the law in? Are you allowing it to show you what sin really is so that you would know your need for a Savior? Are you, or, or, or are, you know, have you cobbled together and are you trying to live, you know, by way of rebellion or religiosity or some other way, you know, are you trying to live out some elaborate self-salvation strategy? One in which... You imagine sin to any degree at all is manageable and not monstrous. One in which all is externalized, the heart is never touched, and never ever opening the way to relationship for which all of us were created. Are you avoiding sin so that you can avoid Jesus? Or will you let the law in all the way in so that the gospel can get all the way in? Will you let the law bring a wrecking ball to your ramshackle kingdom of righteousness so that Jesus can do the great and gracious work of restoration, restoring us to himself, restoring us to one another, restoring us to the creation and the culture we're called to tend to and cultivate for his glory?
You know, I've entitled this sermon, uh, For Theirs is the Kingdom of Heaven, and because we have a very, an incredibly sharp, sharp staff, and because they've become accustomed to contending with a not-so-sharp pastor, uh, the, it was asked, you know, when I submitted that title, is that the right title or am I getting it mixed up? And I do want to say it's the right title. You see, covetousness lives and thrives on the lie that in order for me to have life, I need to still steal and kill and destroy to get that life over there, that life instead of this life. But the gospel speaks a better word and tells us the truth that the thief that is, the power and presence of sin at work in our lives comes to kill and destroy and steal. But Jesus says, I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly. And we get that life not by taking it, taking it from the lives of others, but by receiving it by faith in Christ. Do you want to gain possession of real life? Then quit playing footsie with the law. And allow it to actually do the necessary work of demolition. Let it wreck you. Let it show you what sin really is, that it's more than a failure in outward compliance, but it is the broken, malfunctioning, operating system of our heart that needs healing, that needs a reboot in the gospel. It is that system that produces an exhausting striving to get life by our rule keeping on the one hand or moves us to a rebellion on the other that imagines we can make our own rules. Either way, you're making your own life. Either way, we're being lured into the lie that we can get life even as it sucks us out of us. It sucks it out of us. Let the truth of that move us to a fulsome repentance, not only of our sin, but of our striving. That we would receive and be reconciled to the Savior, Jesus. Be refreshed in him, knowing that life is in him because he is the savior who liberates us from the lie that we can gain a life for ourselves by giving his life for our redemption in that glorious exchange. His life for ours. His success for our failures. His righteousness for our rebellion. His alienation for our adoption. His kingdom for our pitiful little mud pies. Let's pray as we go to the table. Uh, Lord, uh, thank you for your law. Thank you that it does reflect your holy character and that it reveals to us the great chasm between us and you so that, Lord, we must be undone by it. We must know that we need a righteousness, but one we can't produce in ourselves, that we need a cleansing, but one that we can't affect for ourselves, that we need a Savior. Not, no more strategies, no more playing games, no more, you know, outward compliance without ever letting the heart get touched and get wrecked, but in a good way, in such a way that we would be put back together by you, Lord Jesus. We thank you that you have done that, that you have attained for us a great salvation. And Lord, would we be mindful of that as we come to this table, which represents it all, you know, in some ways, I'm always grateful to know I don't have to give some I don't have to put together a great conclusion to any sermon because it's here. It's right here at this table. That brings home the fundamental truth that we um, are bereft of life and you have brought us from death to life and you feed us and sustain us in this life, making us fit for the life to come. 
Lord, thank you for this table. Feed us here. Grow us uh, together in unity and in purpose. And Lord, use uh, the gospel as we have received it here for the good of others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.